Good evening and welcome to the show. Well, if you had any doubt that Western civilization was on its knees, this week probably dispelled it. First, one of Australia's esteemed senators embarrassed herself and the nation by being shoved to the ground by cops to stop her interrupting a peaceful rally in support of women's rights, then crawling away like a wounded animal. Then, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese and various other passengers on the exclusive Indigenous gravy train got all emotional, announcing the official start to the Voice to Parliament campaign, which not only attempts to right a historic wrong that doesn't even exist, but won't benefit the disadvantaged people it claims to help anyway. Moving overseas, Twitter lit up with fake images of former President Donald Trump being arrested for paying hush money to a hooker, while his successor, President Joe Biden, struggled to read poetry off an auto cue. A poem, one today, it says, and always one moon like a silent drum tapping at every rooftop and every window on every, in, of every county. Countries. Let me start this over again. I'm getting so intimidated by being here. <laughs> and always one moon, like a silent drum, tapping on every rooftop and every window of one country, county, county. All of us facing the stars. Hope, a new constellation, waiting for us to map it, waiting for us to name it together. Doddery old Joe misreads country for county, not once, but twice. Joe does have some skills though. He is world famous for negotiating dodgy deals with his son Hunter, who is his intermediary with foreign despots seeking access to Washington's corridors of power. Joe might like to offer some friendly advice to King Charles, who is embroiled in some familial negotiations of his own. His son, Harry, wants space on the Buckingham Palace balcony alongside other working royals to wave at the crowds after the King's coronation on May 6. Well, meanwhile, as our leaders have been preoccupied with trivialities, a much more significant shift in world politics has been taking shape. This shift will have huge implications for Australia, way beyond anything Lydia Thorpe or Albo could cry about. In Beijing, less than two weeks ago, senior Chinese diplomat Wang Yi, pictured here in the centre, brokered a rapprochement between Iran, represented on the right by Supreme National Security Council Secretary Ali, Ali Shamkhani, and Saudi National Security Advisor Mossad bin Mohammed. Four days later, the two countries announced they would resume diplomatic relations. This is a historic moment. The Saudis are Sunni and Iran is Shia. These men shaking hands is like Lydia Thorpe getting up off her knees and graciously embracing Pauline Hanson. Internal divisions in the West are widening, while alliances around the world to the exclusion of the West are getting stronger. Both Saudi Arabia and Iran are among 16 countries that have reportedly applied to join BRICS, 
which stands for Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa. Some reports say our northern neighbour, Indonesia, is one of them. The BRICS countries currently account for over 42% of the global population and nearly a quarter of the world's GDP. But they have less than 15% of the voting rights on the World Bank and International Monetary Fund, according to Bloomberg. So they've started their own alternative, the New Development Bank, and in some cases trade oil and other commodities in Chinese yuan instead of US dollars. If the yuan continues to grow as the currency for trading commodities, it will lower the demand for US dollars, leading to significant and possibly uncontrollable infla inflation in the United States and, by extension, Australia. The most alarming aspect of BRICS, apart from the fact that it is deliberately excluding the US and its formerly powerful allies, is that membership seems predicated on not suffering from climate neurosis. You won't find the likes of Australian Energy Minister Chris Bowen or Greens leader Adam Bant anywhere near the levers of power in a BRICS country. To be fair, some of these countries do turn up at events like the COP27 climate change crisis meeting at Sharm el-Sheikh last year, but mostly only as grifters looking to shake down the West for guilt money for having bigger houses and cars. Money that mug countries like Australia are only too happy to foolishly flick their way. But the real goal of developing countries knocking on the door of BRICS is unrestrained economic growth, which is exactly what BRICS membership offers them. By contrast, Australian Energy Minister Chris Bowen wants to make us a, quote, renewable energy superpower, which is like Sony announcing that it plans to become the world's biggest manufacturer of eight-track cassette players. To do this, Bowen will shut down our coal and gas-fired generators and replace them with windmills and solar panels blanketing the countryside. Next year, Adelaide will host the Biennial International Renewable Energy Conference, where flogging windmills, batteries and solar panels made by Uyghur slaves in China will just be the start of the dead-set battiness. Announcing the conference in January, Bowen said, quote, Forums like IREC will help us continue to work with global partners, the Pacific and First Nations to address key challenges in renewable energy and find the best path to a clean energy future for all. So our Indigenous brothers and sisters will be leaned on to help us come up with new windmills and solar panels. What could possibly go wrong? Another thing the BRICS current and prospective members share is that they mostly haven't backed a side in the Ukraine-Russia war. We have, though. Here is our House of Representatives in a rare moment of complete consensus, even flying the Ukrainian flag inside the Australian National Parliament. I don't think I'm the only Australian to have found that display galling. But we rushed into this fight with no exit strategy or even any clear objective. Chinese President Xi Jinping, by contrast, 
is planning to visit Russian President Vladimir Putin in Moscow soon, after which he has booked a call with Putin's nemesis, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky. China, in other words, is actively seeking a peaceful outcome in Ukraine, while all Australia and its allies do is send guns and money. The West's decline is getting more and more difficult to deny. And just to complete the picture of the week, here is footage of the Bordeaux Town Hall, which was set alight by rioters last night. It's just one of the hundreds of fires, riots, marches and disturbances right across France right now. One person said the crowd on the streets of Paris alone was 800,000 people. And what are the French rioting about? President Emmanuel Macron's decree to raise the age of retirement from 62 to 64 by 2030. They are rioting for the right to not work. Well, to make sense of all that, and to hopefully put his characteristically bemused spin on it all, let's bring in my colleague, Nick Cater of Nick Cater's Battleground. Nick, welcome. Yeah, thanks, Fred. I'm not sure I'm up for the job of making sense of any of that, actually. <laughs> well, we've <laughs> got to give it a try. <laughs> you know, it was, but Nick, it was quite a week. So let's get straight to the most important issue of it all. Should Harry get a spot on the balcony at Buckingham Palace after the coronation on May 6? No, I think he should be queuing in the mall. I think he should get, get himself a, a, a comfy chair and stay overnight in the mall to get himself a good posse. I don't think he should be allowed anywhere near Buckingham Palace. I mean, this guy, he, he's turned his back on the royals. He's performed uh, the, a huge disservice to them. Uh, all in pursuit of his wife's own vanity, as far as I can see. So, I, I, you know, I guess there'll be a diplomatic kind of response to this from the palace, but that would be, if, I was, if it was up to me, that's what I'd do. I'd say, mate, join the queue on, on, on the mail and just see if you can get your, you know, get your head over the, over the top of somebody else and catch a glimpse of, the, of our great and glorious king and, his, <laughs> and queen passing by. Well, it would be, it would look a little insincere for them all to be, you know, pretending to be united on the balcony and waving at the crowds. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, it's like some family Christmas gatherings I know, you know, <laughs> all smiles. That's I, right. Yeah but, yeah. but don't get the sherry out too early. That'd be my <laughs> advice. <laughs> But Nick, am I overstating it by saying that after a week like this, Western civilization looks like it's in decline? You are, as usual. <laughs> I think I fear you've got you've you, you've let your pessimism get the better of you. Uh, I mean, yes, I think this alliance between the, the brick alliance, this brick in the wall between uh, Brazil, Russia, uh, and China is is a is a dangerous thing. Uh, but then you know any closed trading block is dangerous and and in the end doesn't work for anybody's benefit it might work for the short-term gain of the countries that lock in those deals but as we saw with you know european union in the end the people themselves get impoverished because free trade you know that magical thing that that adam smith praised what in the early um, 1770s in in the wealth of nations it continues to produce the wealth of nations and that's where australia's flourishing uh, and I think, you know, our, our, any uh, idea we had that we'd actually signed a real free trade agreement with China is, is obviously 
uh, nonsense given what they're doing in trying to get countries like Brazil on board. I, I, I wonder how much, I have to read into this, how much this has got to do with the change of government there, Fred. I mean... Oh, I think it has a lot yeah. to do with it. I mean, Brazil has been in it since the beginning, which is, I think, 2009. But, I mean, um, the new president there would certainly be... Uh, you know, agitating for it to grow because he's very anti-West. But mm. uh, it's good of you to bring up Adam Smith because, I mean, commerce is one thing, but commerce without freedom is not mm. commerce at all. I mean, you know, where's, where's the innovative, where, where's the spirit of innovation and the freedom and the, the freedom to explore and, and trade and so on? In, in countries like China and increasingly Brazil, um, and Russia, of course, you know, the, the, the enterprising spirit is being snuffed out. So that does put uh, certain limitations on BRICS, doesn't it? Well, it does. And there's a good point about creativity that gets snuffed out when you have, you know, an authoritarian uh, sort of pastiche of capitalism happening. I mean, the Chinese, as best I could aware, you know, it couldn't even invent the real bring Paul can. I mean, that was the Americans, let, let alone... You know, the iPhone, you know, these wonderful little things bought you by capitalism. Mm. You know, it's impossible to see how that degree of creativity and lateral thinking could be allowed to flourish. But also, like made, but also made cheap by Chinese slavery. You have a point there, of course. Yes. yes. Well, I let's thank, bring it back I to France. all those Chinese kiddies who are yes, exactly. Yeah, by yeah. yeah. I mean, I shouldn't laugh. I no, mean, no. It's, not, it's not a funny matter, to be honest. Well, particularly but... when it comes to solar panels, we know, you know, I mean, mm. it, it, it's very hard to determine if any solar panels from China have been free of some form of of slave or forced labour through mm. the, you know, particularly through the Uyghur uh, camps, work camps that they run. And because they spread, uh, having, you know, put them in basically concentration camps in Xinjiang province, they moved them in work gangs around the country. So you, yeah. could, you could have a solar panel made, you know, completely opposite end of the country. And there's probably slave labour wrapped up in it. I wish our, our woke elite, who are so concerned about ancient slavery, would actually have a look at modern slavery sometimes. Indeed. And same with the cobalt coming out of uh, Congo, which Absolutely. is even worse. Let's get back to France, though. What's, what's your take on the rioting there? What, firstly, why is the media ignoring this? I mean, th these riots are right across the country. Yeah, you know, it's France, isn't it? You know, the, the voiture brûlée, they sort of do every, you know, how they get the torch and set fire to the dessert. They do yeah. that with cars. <laughs> voiture brûlée, yeah. I think it's called. But um, that, look, I, it, I suppose because it, it happens all the time in France, doesn't it? They are very violent. Uh, and, and it, it you know, it, it's not surprising it should be over something like this. I, you know, I've always, I don't want to call the French work shy or anything, but I did notice that, you know, whereas we have an, an America and Europe, everywhere else has a 7-Eleven, in France, they have the wheat a wheat, the eight to eight, and 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 even then they take an hour's break in the middle of the day. You know, it's a it's a different attitude there to work, but I think you know it, the, the amount of trouble uh, Macron's had pushing through these, you know, quite modest reforms. I mean, they're not even up to our our um, retirement age yet. And I think when that the original sixty two was set, that was four years older than the average man was supposed to live. Well, I think. In France nowadays, their, their life expectancy is not too sh far short of ours, you know, in the upper 70s. So it's unaffordable. You just can't do it. And uh, uh, like all of us, the French have got to learn, you know, the retirement will come later. I just want to come back to Lydia Thorpe's display outside the Australian Parliament yesterday. 
You know, this is, um, I, I think, firstly, she was trying to disrupt a speech which should have been free because we prize freedom of speech here in Australia. But the debate on the day, as you know, was about whether men can be women, mm. which is a, an absurd proposition. And what I'd like to do is sort of bring it back to, you know, whether or not we're giving freedom a bad name here. And I want to quote to you, you probably know this quote off by heart, it's America's uh, founding father, um, John, one of the founding fathers, John Adams. And he said of the US Constitution, it was, quote, made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate for the government of any other, unquote. Well, you could probably say that about the say the same about any liberal democracy like Australia. Do you think we are squandering our freedom in because we've become immoral and irreligious? Well, I think I think there's something very profound happening there that, that we, you know, we have seen. I mean, it's just, it's, we've seen the statistics, you know, since the mid 1960s, the fall off in people who say they're associated with with a you know, particular church or other other faith group is, is been dramatic. But uh, I, I'm not entirely sure that whether that means there's fewer Christians There's probably just fewer people who want to be seen as being Christians. It's now deeply unpopular. And the fact that, you know, still not, you know, not much under half of the country are still happy to say they're Christians, I think shows a bit of courage, right? It's yeah. not something you, you, you'd want known in some circles. So, uh, yeah, there has been this decline, but I get sidetracked. I mean, that, you're right. The point is that everybody needs that guiding moral compass. You know, they need that, that, that narrative, that, that, that narrative of what makes a good person. Uh, somewhere in their head that we share with everybody. So we're all in agreement on that. And, and once you lose um, Christian faith, not just the Christian faith, incidentally, you know, other religions have, have this as a strong element too. It doesn't matter, you know, I mean, just as so long as we can all agree these are the rules, a good person does this. That's gone out of the window, of course, so now that's contested. And, and you, you have this new thing which looks very much like a religion called woke, uh, which I, I talk about on my program this week uh, as being you know, and a Puritan form of religion. It's quite uncanny in its resemblance. Who um, have you got on your show this week, Nick? Noah Rothman has written a book, brilliant new book called The New, the new Puritans, where he, he you know, we've all talked to it, a lot of us have talked about the comparison between woke and, and religion, but he goes further and says that, you know, Puritan doesn't just have these articles of faith that he believes, you know, climate change or whatever but he also actively wants to work to make the world a better place. And it's this element of working, uh, you know, being, it's no, no good just to be anti-racist in your head. You have to be anti-racist in your performative actions, you know, taking the knee at appropriate place and all that. That's what makes this uh, different from, from just an ordinary religion. I'd argue it also has pagan elements to it too. Mm, you very know, much. With their, yeah. Anyway, before we go, I need to get your opinion on The Voice. I said last night on the show that anyone who hasn't recently emerged from our education system probably underestimates the amount of anti-Australian brainwashing that kids go through these days. The number of young people in favour of The Voice could be the big surprise in this referendum. What do you think? Well, yeah, no, look, it'll be interesting to delve into some of the, the data and we'll be doing some polling on this uh, starting next week, I think. So we'll, we'll get some indication of this, but I would be pretty certain that you're right, that there's a much stronger uh, support for the voice amongst younger people. 
Uh, and you could put that down to a number of things. Maybe older people are less caring and more stupid. I, I don't know, but somehow I don't think so. I think we've just, we've just seen all this before, haven't we? We've yeah, seen the eight, we're more realistic. We've seen the eight previous attempts to get some form of unelected voice to, to Canberra, and we've seen every one of them fail. So you just get it maybe, call us jaded, but, but I, I, I just think there's a degree of scepticism that creeps in at a certain age. Gary Johns said on my show last night that Peter Dutton needs to come out really quickly to say this, uh, this you know, so I should say Gary Johns is a former Labor minister yeah. and is one of the leading voices on the No campaign. And he said on the show last night, Peter Dutton, the opposition leader, needs to get out as quick as he can and say this needs to be rejected. What, What's your take on the way Peter Dutton has played this? Well, I, I, Peter Dutton has frustrated a lot of Conservatives, to be honest, because a lot of people hold that view that Gary has, that he needs to come out. He should have come out a long time ago with a fire and brimstone kind of condemnation of this voice. Uh, but there's other people apart from uh, the Liberal uh, or the Conservatives in the Liberal Party who think this, including the Prime Minister. I mean, the Prime Minister would, would desperately love Anthony Albanese to make the story about himself because Anthony Albanese right now is looking round for his escape path from this. Who will he blame? At the moment, you know, the blame applies to him for having uh, so badly mishandled this referendum process and gone off, you know, with, w without trying to seriously seek any bipartisan support until the last minute. The blame has to lie with Albanese, but he would desperately love uh, you know, uh, Peter Dutton to come out as a sort of troglodyte Tory from central casting and, and so he can say, you're the wrecker, you're the one to blame. People of Australia should, should, should blame you. And, and I think Dutton has played a very clever game in not doing that, while at the same time forcing some very substantial concessions out of Albanese in order to get the referent, you know, the, the, the mechanism uh, uh, through the parliament and, and you know, the important uh, concessions because they apply to free speech. You know, there will, even though Al Albanese didn't want to do it, there will now be an official no argument circulated every house in a pamphlet. There will now be tax deductible gift status, i.e. you know, deductible to, uh, donations for the no case as well as the yes case. These are very important things he's pushed and, uh, and it's probably right that, you know, you wouldn't want to be the, the party that said, well, the, we don't want the people to hold, have their say in this by blocking the legislation altogether. So it's probably right that since the legislation was going to go through one way or another, that he's ensured that we actually get a robust and informed debate insofar as he's able and a level playing field. As usual, a very astute observation of the situation, Nick, and I hope Dutton's strategy works. Nick, thanks for your time. Thanks, Fred. Tune in at 9pm for Nick Cater's show, Nick Cater's Battleground, which is straight after Save the Nation with David Flint at 8pm. And that's all from me for this week. Have a great weekend with the people you love, and I'll see you on Monday at 7 o'clock. Good night.